of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel's kind of like the book of Revelation. If you just flop in the middle of it, you can get lost real quick. So just a little bit of context, kind of where we've been. Daniel appears to be the earliest known apocalyptic writing. An apocalypse deals with, uh, basically it's a book intended to give hope to people who are in a period of persecution by laying out what God will be doing in the future for God's people. Now the way the book is laid out is the second half of the book is a series of visions, four visions in six chapters. Um, and then the first half of the book uh, is primarily stories like the three U's in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. It, it's sort of hero tales of, of deliverance where at the last possible second God delivers one of God's people. Last week we looked at chapter one which is basically sets it in the historical setting of the period of the exile and shortly after that uh, we were introduced to th four characters Daniel and who are the others Shadrach Meshach and Abednego that's their Hebrew names and whereas we're told they were actually given uh, Babylonian names and we are raised uh, then the, the, the main issue of the book is raised before us which is that they're in a situation where culturally their culture is, is being eradicated by the empire who now controls them and so the lines drawn in the sand with one particular thing that they're going to refuse to compromise on. You remember what it was? Food. So the dietary laws are central to this book. Um, now when we come to chapter 2, we have the first of the visions. And it's different from the rest of the visions. Chapter 2, we're going to have a vision of the king that will be interpreted by Daniel. Starting in chapter 7, we're going to have visions by Daniel himself. That he has. Uh, so as we look today, uh, and what we'll see with these various visions is the one today is going to sort of lay things out in sort of outline form, and the later visions will then give more details. But the basic image that we have of the of uh, kind of the whole message of the book will be today. So we're going to start in Daniel chapter two, verses one through four. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled. So these are disturbing dreams for the king that his sleep left him. So he's having dreams. They're disturbing. He's unable to sleep. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the wise men, and the astro uh, astrologers. Sometimes uh, it'll, in your translation, say at the end, the Chaldeans, but by Chaldeans, it's wise men and astrologers. He summons them. Now, I think he's grabbing everybody he can at this point uh, to tell the king his dreams. They came in. They stood before the king. He said to them, I have had such a dream, and my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. I want to know what this dream means. The wise men and the astrologers, the Chaldeans, said to the king, in Aramaic, not Babylonian. So that's interesting. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will reveal the interpretation. So give us the dream. Tell us what you dreamed. We'll give you the interpretation. That's what we do for a living. We're, you know, don't try this at home. Leave it to the professionals. <laughs> Second year of the king's reign. Now, this is interesting because it's historically impossible. Remember, we talked about the book of Daniel for a lot of reasons. We're going to see a couple of them real quick. It's set in one time period, 
which is what? Babylonian, and we'll hear a little bit of Persian. But it appears to be dealing with issues that are 2nd century, not 6th century, 400 years later. And there's a lot of indications as to why scholars believe this. Here's one of them. King Nebuchadnezzar assumed the throne in 605 B.C. We know this for a fact. There's no, no quibbling about this. So the second year of his reign, we're B.C., so we're counting down, 604 B.C. Well, this is 20 years before Daniel was taken into exile. And it's before Daniel was born. So it's just one of those indications in the book of Daniel that, that when you go back to the earlier period, the, the, the authors uh, don't know as much and they make a lot of mistakes. As you move down the second century, all of a sudden they're very accurate with great detail. And this is one of those places. There's another one here. Uh, speaking Aramaic. Again, that is another historical anomaly. During the Babylonian period, nobody would speak Aramaic. Does anybody know why? Where does the Aramaic language come from? Well, it will go to Israel. It comes from Persia. Aramaic is the language spoken by the Persians. And so the, ch the children of Israel are carried into captivity during the Babylonian period. And then they're controlled for 200 years by the Persians. And then Alexander comes and they'll be controlled by the Greeks. We're going to see evidence of both of those today. So Arabic became the official court language a century after Daniel during the Persian period and beyond. So there's a couple of these indicators here that, that the real focus of the book is a later period, which is exactly what the dream is going to tell us. So Nebuchadnezzar dream. Now, <coughs> I don't know about you, but if I have a really disturbing dream, I might go to a psychologist and work it out a bit. And if, if you've ever been in therapy, you know that dreams are a very, very good way of getting, in, getting a handle on that. Well, in the ancient world, dreams were understood at a whole different level. They were, uh, particularly the dreams of kings, they were thought to carry great meaning. Uh, they carried messages from the gods. They carried great importance about the future. And they were often recorded and consulted. So one of the things that actually survives today, and this we have this in Egypt, we have it in Assyria, we have it in Babylonia, we have it in Persia, is we have these dream books where the king's dreams are recorded and then kept in the library. So if there's something going on, you might want to consult the dreams so you can figure out what's going on. So here's King Ashurbanipal's dream book. He's uh, one of the last Assyrian kings. And the setting is he's at war. The army saw the river, which was at that moment a raging torrent and was afraid of crossing. You know, spring, kings go to war. It's what kings do in the spring. So he's got his army, he's campaigning against one of his neighbors, and his, his army won't cross the river. They're a little afraid of the water. Okay, that happens. But the goddess Ishtar let my army have a dream in the midst of the night addressing them as follows. He has the dream, it's for his army. I shall go in front of Ashurbanipal, the king whom I have created myself. The army relied upon this dream and safely the river just a little insight into the ancient world so what you know if, if a person has a dream it might have some meaning if the king has a dream pay attention because there's an important message here remember the jacob story pharaoh he has this dream about seven fat cattle and seven starving cattle you remember what the important what was the message of the dream feast and famine we're going to have seven good years and we're going to have seven not quite so good 
So if Jacob becomes or Joseph becomes in charge of the country, what should he do the first seven years? Store everything. So when the, when the, the, the famine comes, he's set to go. Uh, and it portends what's the coming seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Now, Daniel's story has a lot of other parallels to the Joseph story in Genesis. In both stories, you've got a Gentile ruler who has a troubling dream. This is a very common thing. Uh, one that his professional uh, dream interpreters cannot unlock. We have a Hebrew exile who comes forward and explains the dream with the help of God. And as a reward, he will be put in charge of the whole kingdom. And actually, in Daniel's case, he does not get put in charge of the kingdom, but the other three do. Um, even the language is the same. So just a little piece of Genesis. Just see if this sounds like it comes from Daniel. In the morning, his, this is Pharaoh's, spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt with all his wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So it's a very similar kind of motif. Verse 5, we're now going to have the king and his interpreters as they come forward and face the king. The king answered the wise men and the astrologers with, uh, this is a public decree, so we're not going to rescind this. This is out there. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Tough neighborhood, okay? <laughs> a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. Now, I cut it out, but the other side is, and if you do it, all kinds of riches will come to you. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. What's the catch-22 here? Tell them the dream, yeah. Anybody can interpret a dream, but how would anybody know what somebody else dreamed unless somebody told you? Real tough neighborhood, okay? They answered the second time. Let the king first tell his servants the dream. I'm, I'm with them. I'm thinking that makes sense. Then we will give you the interpretation. There is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great or powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, wise man, or astrologer. King, you're out of line. Nobody would ask that. That's just not fair. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king, wait for it, except the gods. And they're not here. Okay. No gods here, therefore we can't get the meeting. Because of this, the king flew into a violent rage, commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed, not just the ones in front of him. We're just going to make a clean star. We're going to get rid of all of them. The decree was issued. The wise men were about to be executed. Sidebar. They looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them because they're thought to be a part of this group. Now, do you remember Susan when she taught uh, Esther, Ruth and Esther, a while back? And as she was reading the book of Esther, she talked about the, the typical depiction of a Middle Eastern king. Okay? You see it again here. This is a very common thing. Um, what we're actually saying is the stereotype of an ancient Eastern king. They, they had absolute power, and they abused it. They were given the fits of rage. They acted out in arbitrary and capricious a manner, which is not healthy for you especially. Um, they're unbalanced, they're violent, and they're dangerous. 
And we see that uh, in the book of uh, Esther. We see it in the book of Judith, which is in the Apocrypha, and also First and Second Maccabees. By the way, these are all books written in which century? Second. Yeah. The period that we think Daniel is actually written. So it's very, this is another one of those reasons that it we think it's consistent. Now, we have a little foreshadowing here, and he dropped the hint twi twice. There's no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. Now, what's the key phrase in there? On earth. What about not on earth? And what is the title for God in the book of Daniel? God of the heavens. Or God of heaven. So God is not God of the earth. God is God of heaven. So there's no God on earth. There's no, you know, no one but the gods and no one on earth. Well, we have a little, we have a solution to that. Of course, the key is the earth. It's reinforced with no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. Does Daniel know a god? Mm-hmm. And is that god on earth? Mm-mm. So we have, we have a possibility here. The king is so angry that he orders the execution of the magicians. It's interesting that this includes Daniel and his friends. Now, do you know anything about the Old Testament and what the view of magicians and dream interpreters was in the Old Testament? Particularly the book of Deuteronomy. What's the penalty for interpreting a dream? You know, not healthy. Uh, they look to Daniel. They're being portrayed as magicians, despite the fact that we have a clear prohibition. So I just thought, and by the way, this is in uh, the book of Daniel about six or seven times. This is just one of them, chapter 13. Those who divine by dreams. And what is Daniel being asked to do? Divine to interpret by dreams shall be put to death for having spoken treason against the Lord your God. Why? Kind of the understanding is, is that if you're divining by dreams, you're calling into play other gods. That was the common understanding. And so if you interpret dreams, Saul got in trouble for this, among others. Uh, now, we have now Daniel now knows that he's being hunted for, and it's not good. Uh, they're not going to give him a raise or promotion. His life is in jeopardy. So Daniel's going to do a little maneuvering here. Then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion. I think discretion would be a good thing at this point. To Arioch, the king's chief executioner, not the guy you want to get close to, um, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Couldn't you wait till tomorrow to kill me? You know, what's the big rush on this? So Arioch then explained the manner to Daniel. Daniel's up to speed now. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him some time, and he would tell the king the interpretation, which is interesting. What does Daniel not said he would give? The dream. But give me some time, I will interpret your dream. Of course, that's going to put him in front of the king, which could be a little life-threatening. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that's their Babylonian names, and told them to seek mercy from, here it is, this is the title for God in the book of Daniel, the God of heaven, not the God of earth, concerning this mystery. Mystery is another kind of language you do not find in any biblical writings. 
until we get to the second century. And in the second century, we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things, uh, we have all this language about mystery and, and the mystery of the prophets and stuff. And so here we have the term mystery. So that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men in Babylon might not perish. So we've already been reinformed that no one on earth will be able to interpret the dream. Um, only the gods can, and they're not here. Um, so Daniel goes to the God of heaven for the answer. That's the door that's left open. Now, God is going to reveal the king's dream to Daniel, and then we'll get the interpretation. Then the mystery. By the way, why would it be a mystery? Any thoughts? I guess the, the simple answer is because we don't know what it means. We haven't interpreted it yet, so it's a mystery. Um, mystery language is also very closely, closely associated with only the things that God could know. No human being could know it. It's just in particular, what kinds of things could only God know? Well, in particular, the future. We don't know what the future will hold. God knows what the future holds. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. Now, what's the common language you and I use for a vision at night? A dream. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And then he goes into this prayer that's very descriptive of how he understands God. Uh, we want to look at this. Blessed be the name of God from age to age for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. Do you remember the earlier in the book, the, the astrologers and all the, the wise men, they asked for more time? It's not accidental here. God changes time and the seasons. He deposes kings and sets up kings. Not what Nebuchadnezzar would want to hear, I think. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Now, remember in chapter 1, as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were introduced. What is it they have that's ten times better than anything in Babylon? Their wisdom, their knowledge, their insight. <coughs> so we know where that comes from. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And light dwells with him. So we have a vision at night, a dream. Um, it's interesting that the, we start with a dream of the king. And the answer to the dream of the king comes in a dream that Daniel has. So a dream is answered by a dream. In other words, both would come from God. And we have in Daniel's prayer then some, some, some really nifty, interesting kind of insights into God. Wisdom and power are his. He has the ability to change times and seasons. He's in control of what goes on. He sets up kings. He deposes kings. Now flag that because in a minute we're going to see this vision. And what the vision is really about is the knocking down and the setting up of kings. He reveals deep hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And most importantly, of course, what's going on? God answers prayer. Just before the answer came to Daniel, what were Daniel and his three friends doing? Praying. They'd gone to God to get an answer to a prayer. And we're told there that, that what, we, what we get is what we ask for, and more particularly, what the king ordered. So we're going to have the dream and its interpretation. Verse 24. 
Daniel is now going to tell the king his dream. He didn't have the dream himself. He doesn't know this has to be revealed to him. The king said to Daniel, are you able to tell me the dream that I have seen? Now, there's a little bit of moment to the answer to this, isn't there? If he can't do it, the stakes are pretty high. And it's interpretation. So give me the dream. Give me the interpretation. Daniel answered, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed were these. So I'm going to give you what you dreamed. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. The statue was huge. Its brilliance, extraordinary, very shiny. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening to you. This is why the, the, the king is troubled. He can't sleep, because this is a very scary, frightening kind of an image. The head of the statue was fine gold. Chest and arms, silver. Middle and thighs, bronze. Legs, iron. Feet, partly of iron, partly of clay. Now that's just weird. I'm not even sure the thing could stand up. And as you, which may be the whole point of the dream. As you looked down, a stone was cut out, not by human hands. So this is not a normal kind of stone. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, starting at the bottom, just working its way up, were all broken to pieces. So it doesn't just smash the, the feet. Once the feet are smashed, the entire edifice simply disintegrates. I don't know about you, but that would give me nightmares also. <laughs> and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Now, you know anything about this area of the world? When does the wind blow? Yeah, the Sirocco winds. Yeah. Um, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Sh the statue disintegrates into basically dust. A strong wind comes, blows the dust away, and there's not a single trace that this great edifice ever existed. But the stone that struck the statue grew and become a great mountain and filled the entire earth. End of dream. Whatever he ate, he'll never eat again. <laughs> now, not a good idea. So let's walk through the dream. Large statue, enormous, dazzling, awesome, frightening. Okay. Any ideas what the statue might be? You know, later, Daniel will tell him, but uh, he's familiar with what the statue is. We've got five levels in the statue made of different materials. Materials, interestingly, of decreasing value. Clearly, what has the most value? Gold, then silver, then bronze. You might argue bronze or iron, but clearly at the bottom when you got clay, not so much. Uh, so this is the way it comes down. So part of what we're being told is this, because later we're going to be told that part of the statue is we're going through time and we're going through empires. So as we're moving forward, we're decreasing the value, decreasing the quality, and down there at the bottom is where things seem to happen. Now, to you and me, this is probably just thinking he needs to not eat that again. But in the ancient world, people would have instantly, instantly known what this symbolism meant. 
particularly people living in the second century, not the sixth century, but the second century they would have known. Because in this by the second century, differing metals were used to represent different time periods in multiple cultures and, and also represent different empires. For example, you ever heard of the Greek writer Hesiod? He writes about 700 B.C. He wrote one of his works is called Works and Days. And in lines 109 to 201, way too long to quote, what he basically does is he, he gives you a sequence of five ages, five empires, symbolized by five elements. They just happen to be gold, silver, bronze, iron, and nonmetal. Interesting. Now, with Hesiod, though, it's not the future. It's the past. He looks back to the golden age. And then there was an age following the golden age that was not quite so good. It was the silver age. And after that was another age of decline. The bronze age come down. So that's how he views that. Now there's another source that uses the same images from the same time period. It's from Persia. And like Daniel, it's apocalyptic. Now, what time period did Persia become relevant to Israel's history? Babylonian? the Medians, briefly, Persians, Greeks. So the Persians, in the time frame the book of Daniel is supposed to be about, he wouldn't have heard of the Persians yet. They're not in the world scene. But if we're down in the second century, would they have known about the Persians? Okay. And who, what is the Persian religion, do you remember? Zoroastrianism. And the god of Zoroaster, Ahura Mazda, Okay, and we actually have one of their writings left that uses exactly this sequence. By the way, brownie points. <laughs> <laughs> then Ahura Mazda, the god, the god of the Persians, the Zoroastrian god, displayed the omniscient wisdom of to their Zarathustra. Zarathustra is the founder of the Zoroastrian religion. This is the guy. So the god, Ahura Mazda, displayed his wisdom to Zarathustra. And through it, he beheld the root of a tree on which there are four branches, one golden, one silver, one iron, and one mixed up with iron. This was seen in a dream. Uhura Mazda spoke to Zarathustra. Say that five times real quick. The lord of a tree, the, wait, the root of the tree which you saw and the four branches are the four periods of time which will come. So by the second century, this was very common. Now by the second century, we've already had interfacing with the Greek Empire. So we know about Hesiod's deal. We've already had interfacing with the Persian Empire. So this people would have known, even if they can't read, they would have known this. We have the end of days. God is the revealer of mysteries. The ultimate mystery, of course, is the end of days. What will happen in the future? Uh, the content of the dream is about the future. And we'll see this explicitly when we get to Daniel's interpretation. Um, but what the dream is really about is what's going to happen to the king and his kingdom and the kingdom after that and the kingdom after that and the kingdom after that going for several centuries and what's going to happen to God's people in the midst of all that. I mean, it's real cryptic, but the basics are there. There will be a series of empires, each weaker than the other. They will span centuries. Then something happens. 
that something is that a rock not made with human hands. Now, if it's not made with human hands, how is it made? In the ancient world, there's only one other choice. God, a divine being, must have made it. So God's rock is going to strike the statue on its feet. And if you're following the chronology, you're basically saying it's not going to happen now. It's going to happen when? Then. Centuries into the future. Uh, at the last time period. And this reveals, of course, the secret to when God will act. God's going to bring this edifice down, but not today in Daniel's supposed time period. But guess what century is clay and iron? Second century. Okay. And we, we're going to see really explicitly what that is. When God strikes this whole edifice of empire, five greatest empires of the ancient world, uh, will be blown away like the wind. There won't even be a trace of them. They'll just be gone. And the great empires will be shown up for what they are. Nothing. You know, we haven't heard the interpretation yet, but this is sort of the, the surface deal. The rock will then become a huge mountain, fill the whole earth. Now, what the heck is that about? Well, we have to wait. The dream is given. All we lack is what Daniel's interpretation is. So starting at verse 36. This was the dream. O king, now we will tell the king its interpretation. So we'll see how close we are. You, O king, uh, the king of kings, the mightiest king there is on the planet, to whom the God of heaven has given. That's interesting. Where did the king get everything he has? From the God of heaven. The kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hand God has given human beings, all those that you oppress, all those that you control. So if you're a Jew and you're one of the oppressed people, you've just been told that who's really in charge. And, 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 and God is allowing this to happen. You are the head of gold. So we start with you at the top of the statue. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And we know that the kingdom that followed Babylon was the kingdom of Media. It didn't last just a blink of an eye because right behind it was Persia. Yeah, the third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. Do you remember what the extent of the, the Persian Empire was? India to Greece. It's the largest empire the world had known up to that point. Now, Alexander the Great is going to take that and expand it a little bit. But part of what Alexander did is he conquered the Persian Empire. Why did he go to, to India? That's where the Persian Empire went. So he went all the way. Uh, and there shall be a, a third kingdom of bronze, rule the, earth, rule the whole earth. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Who took down Persia? Alexander the Great, okay? Just as iron crushes and smashes everything. One of the things that's just, just amazing about Alexander, he went with inferior forces against superior forces and won battle after battle after battle. And the mightiest empire in the world collapsed seemingly overnight, like, like iron going through everything. It shall crush and shatter all these. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom. By the way, what happens after Alexander dies? His empire is divided into five areas, two of which are relevant to the Jews because those two, the Ptolemies in Egypt, 
the Seleucids in Syria are going to war back and forth for hundreds of years with the Jews caught in between. As you saw, the iron mixed with the clay, so will they mix with one another in marriage. Now think about what you know about Alexander the Great and his, his, his policy that's called Hellenization. What did he do? But they will not hold together as the iron does not mix with the clay. This thing's going to fall apart. So after you. The dream is really not, uh, not, not about Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he's the top image, but the dream is really not about him. What is the dream about? The dream is about what follows him and tracks it down through four empires. What will happen later? Much later. If we get to the feet, we're 400 years later. Just as you saw, each of the five types of metal represent <coughs> kingdoms. This lays out the future that's coming. By the way, anybody in the second century would have instantly recognized these descriptions of these kingdoms. They would have known what Persia was. They would have known what Alexander the Great was. And they would have known that following Alexander the Great, there would be separation because that was part of their history. Um, they represent, if you look at the statue, it begins at the time of the story of Daniel, 6th century B.C., Babylonia. The time frame ends 2nd century B.C. at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Great Crisis. Four kingdoms, Babylon, Media, Persia, Alexander, and then we get this clay and iron mixed, uh, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Uh, then we get this language about not mixing with one another. You probably know that um, in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, and one of the major concerns of the Jews as they came back from the exile was that they did not mix. So we have those stories in Ezra and Nehemiah when they came back and they found other Jews who had married non-Jews, what were they required to do? Put away their wives and their children. Th this mixing thing is a very important thing because Alexander the Great, and this was, this was different, one of the things Alexander the Great did as he, as he marched across the world is he mixed Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek worldview with the local culture. He encouraged all of his soldiers to marry local women. They whipped it in a blender together, and out of that popped something new called Hellenism. And what Hellenism is, is it's basically a mixture of Greek and local and all together. And it was very important that this be standardized, that we all be together on this. Now, if we move down to the second century and the, the whole Maccabean deal, what was Antiochus Epiphanes trying to do? He wanted standardization in his empire. If everybody's going their own way and doing their own thing, this weakened the empire, he thought. So he tried to crush any center where people tried to keep their identity. And that's what's behind this. Now, this, so this is what some Jews, and by the way, there were some Jews who supported Antiochus Epiphanes, and they went to the gymnasiums, and they took on all the accoutrements of Greek civilization, including worshiping Greek gods and other parts of this. There were other Jews who feared this, resisted it. This would include the Maccabees. And guess what? All this is going on in Jerusalem, and you've got different groups competing for power, some are playing to this guy in Antiochus Epiphanes. He's got the money to give to that, those groups. 
Other groups are opposing them. It's just an unmitigated mess. Read the books of First and Second Maccabees if you, you just want to see all the details of that. Um, <laughs> but the issue for the writer of Daniel, among others, is we do not, we want to, uh, we want to separate, we do not want to lose our identity in this. Now, the, the author also drops hints. We saw this in chapter one last week. We'll see it in chapter two today. We'll see it in chapter after chapter after chapter. One of the big issues in Daniel is you got this, these mighty empower, empires who seem to rule the day, but the real question is who is really in charge? It's the same issue in the book of, Daniel, uh, book of Revelation. Rome appears omni you know, omnipotent. Who is really in charge? And that, that message comes to the book of Revelation. Same thing here. Given you dominion. Major ruler. These are statements to the king. King, you may be the mightiest thing there is out there, but guess what? Your power did not come from you. It ultimately came from someone else, from God. Daniel, uh, starting verse 44 now, this business with the rock. What's all this stuff with the rock? And in those days of the kings, of those kings, this is all forward now, all 400 years, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. By the way, earliest known reference to the kingdom of God. We don't find language of the kingdom of God in the older stratas of the Old Testament. And by the time that the major portion of the Old Testament closes fourth century with Malachi, there's not been a single reference to the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is language of the second century. And it sets up the ministry of Jesus as we come forward. The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom. It shall never be destroyed. Unlike some other kingdoms we just saw. Nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. Because it's been wasted away. It shall crush all those kingdoms who bring them to an end. Now, one of the things we see in some of the writings, particularly the Psalms of Solomon, which is not in our Bible, but is probably contemporary with Jesus or just before where there's all this desire that when the Messiah comes, what do we want the Messiah to do? Smash, bash, and crash those who oppress us and just roll tide right over them. It shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. So all these worldly powers that have been oppressing us, just like the vision said, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that the stone was cut from the mountain not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. That's the mystery. The mystery is what is to come. The mystery is the future. So in the dream, in skeletal form, in outline form, we get the essential message. The empires will not last. God will and God will set up a kingdom. We need to look at that. And then, then finally these words. The dream is certain. The interpretation, trustworthy. Put it in the bank. Okay? Just know this. Now, who's that, who's that written for, by the way? Who needs to hear that? I don't think the king does. Because the king has just been told his empire is going bye-bye. Who are the people who most need to hear these words? The exiles. Okay. 
So in those days, now this section is not found, it's not actually a part of the dream. This is a Dan Daniel's additions. We've got the rock that smashes, that becomes a mountain, and that expands to everything. But then Daniel goes on, this sort of adds, adds to that. Uh, what this is what he adds. At the end of the time, represented by the statue, and today we would know that's probably 2nd century, probably the year 167 B.C., God will destroy the empires of the world. And at that time, that would be the empire of Antiochus, Epiphanes, Seleucus, the empire that's dominating the world at that time. And he will set up an eternal kingdom, never be destroyed or left to others. Now, a couple of questions here. An eternal kingdom for whom? So supposedly the king's dream. Is it an eternal kingdom for him? I don't think so. And when? For the future. Now, these are the questions. How many more dreams do we have still to come? We've got five in the book. We've got four more to go. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, 11, 12 is one. Those are going to give us all the detail. They'll answer the whom, the when, and all the detail. So the dream, that the, 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 the vision ends with a dream that oppressed people desperately need to hear. The world's oppressor kingdoms, bye-bye. God will take them out. God will establish God's rule. And God's kingdom shall come. And I'm thinking that's good news. The final words are the dream is certain. The interpretation is trustworthy. Put it in the bank. Now, later visions, as I've said, are going to give us more details. It's like, it's like, a, like an overlay. We get the skeletal. In chapter 7, we're going to get more details. Chapter 8, we'll get still more details. Chapter 9, still more details. But chapter 10, 11, and 12, one long, massively detailed vision will just get the whole thing kind of laid out. For now, is it enough just to have the promise? The book of Daniel would say, that's enough. Now, I'm not giving it to you, but you can read it. There's a final scene. Uh, this is sort of stylized. The king praises God. That's interesting. He actually worships Daniel, but then he praises God. Daniel and his friends are rewarded. His three friends get to run the country. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel remains in the court. Why? We got more stories coming. So from this, we're going to, we, it's a few weeks before we get back to dreams. So now we have all these court tales. And we have one of the very favorite ones next week. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And the little furnace incident. <laughs>